morning, everyone. It's good to see you. And we are getting toward the end of our series on heaven. We have another one next weekend. And then our final sermon on heaven is actually an interview where Pastor Kyle will be asking me your most asked questions. So if you have a chance and want to turn in a question, you can just simply uh, text in to 612-562-8202 and, uh, or you can write it out legibly on a communication card. And then, like I said, we'll try to answer the most asked questions that you send in. So help yourself to that if you would choose to. And don't miss the next couple weekends. I want to tell you about a young lady. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And in 1952, she stepped into the chilly waters of the Pacific off of the island of Catalina out west to swim all the way to the mainland of California. Now, this wasn't something new to her. She already swam back and forth on the English Channel. But today was very foggy. And you could, she could hardly see in front of her, let alone the boats that were beside her. Fifteen hours into the swim. I mean, that, like an hour into the swim, I'm in big trouble. Fifteen hours into the swim. She said, I need you to take me out of the water. I'm exhausted. I cannot do this. Her mother happened to be in one of the boats. And her mother tried to inspire her daughter to keep going. That the, the end, you know, was, was closer than, than she might think. But Florence protested and said, no, I want out now. And so they took her out. And they put her in the boat. And once she got in the boat, she discovered that the shore of the mainland was less than a half a mile away. The next day at a news conference, she was asked about the whole episode. And she said, it was so foggy I couldn't see the shore. But if I had seen the shore... I probably would have made it. The reason I want to tell you that story is because all of us face similar circumstances in our life. We get fogged in by doubt and discouragement and the daily trials that we face in our lives and we quickly lose sight of hope and we lose sight of heaven, we lose sight of the future. There's a sense in which we have to live constantly looking where we are, but also looking at where we're going. You know, if, if you just go through life always looking down, sooner or later you're going to trip over something that you don't see coming. So it's very, very important that you always kind of look up frequently, and that's what we have to do through life. And that's what Satan doesn't want us to do. Because I think the enemy is worried that if we get a really good view of heaven by faith, and really convicted that there's a future waiting for us, a glorious, wonderful future, and take it seriously, we might actually get passionate about God. And so passionate about the assurance of our future that we get serious about our faith in this life. And that's not what he wants to have happen. So we're talking about heaven, not just to help us think about our future, but to inspire us in the now, to live passionately for the Lord right now. And so we've been in this series, What Happens After You Die? And We've been asking a question, then what? You die, then what? We've learned that the believer goes to a temporary place called paradise. We talked all about it. If you missed any of the messages, you can go online. And then uh, we asked the question, then what? We said, well, when Christ returns, we come back with him, we receive a resurrected body. So we asked the question again, then what? And the Bible tells us then we experience what's called the new heaven and the new earth which raises all kinds of questions and curiosity. What is that going to be like? 
But in order to answer that question, <clears throat> we need to do a little bit of theology, okay? But we're going to do theology my style. We're going to draw theology out. It's a lot easier to understand that way, at least for me. So grab your pens or your markers, your crayolas. You should always have them with you. You never know when the board's going to appear. And uh, you, can, you can draw with Dale's segment, all right? So let's do that together. Now, the first thing I want you to do, it's always great to see our students here, by the way. First thing I want us to do is, is, is realize that the board, the board symbolizes the universe. Now, the universe is a little bit bigger than my board. Not much, but a little bit bigger, okay? And let's imagine that in the universe, this little dot I'm going to put here represents planet Earth. Now, in the big scheme of things, the Earth is a speck, barely noticeable. And I think God did that on purpose to show us how much he loves us. No matter how small and insignificant we might seem, in all the universe, we matter to him more than anything else. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn your, your dot into your version of the world. I am not a good circle drawer, but there we go. Earth's not too bad. A little lopsided on the hemisphere up here, but we're okay. And it says in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that God planted a garden somewhere probably in the Middle East, in the gar uh, and he called it what? All right, you guys, you had caffeine. You have overslept, all right? So you can respond better than that, all right? And he called it what? Oh, that was so much better, okay? So God puts a, a garden there, and in the middle of the garden, God put two particular trees, and God said, you may not eat of these trees. Now, one was called the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and the other is called the tree of life. And God then also placed the man whose name was? Very good. And the woman whose name was? In the garden, okay? And God said to them, you can eat the fruit of any of these trees, but not these. Now, these trees are not magical trees. The fruit is not some kind of magical fruit. It's what the trees represent that's important. Because in essence, what God is saying to them is, by me telling you don't eat from these trees, I want you to trust me and obey me. I want you to let me be the source of morality, and I want you to let me be the source of life. Don't play God, in other words. Let me be God, and everything will be good. And it says that there was a river that went through the garden, and it formed four heads, and it watered the garden, and one of the heads is called the Pishon River, and that river flows to the land of Havilah, where there is aromatic resin and onyx, it says, and the purest and the best of gold. The other one is called the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And everything was going really well here. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 3, even though that's a bad chapter because that's where man rebels, it does tell us that after Adam and Eve were hiding from God, they heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you get the sense that this was not the first time. So in some way that we don't know, God was present with Adam and Eve in the creation that he made. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they took what didn't belong to them and the curse of death, physical and spiritual, came upon us all. And what happened was is it fractured, it fractured the universe. It fractured the universe. It fractured not only our lives, the devastation of sin, but the environment as well. So there is a sense in which I am an environmentalist. We should care about our environment. Listen to what it says. Paul says this about the environment, Romans 8. 
For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So the environment is being personified. It's it's being treated like a person. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan. Anybody groan when you got up this morning? All right. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us, the resurrection bodies we talked about last weekend. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, look, the whole, the whole of the cosmos knows that something's broken. The animals, creation just knows that something's not right. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian. You, you can be a secularist, and you still sense something's not right with the world. You just know in your gut. This is, this is not why we were created. This is not our purpose. There has to be something better than what we're experiencing. What went wrong? Well, the Bible tells us what went wrong. But the Bible also tells us what went right. It tells us how God has made a way for us to be reconciled, not just us, but creation too. So when you listen to Colossians 1 as I read it, think about how Christ is described as the creator and his relationship to us. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, have been made, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we go back to our diagram, and we realize that what Paul is saying is that on the cross, Jesus did something for us. He died our death. He took our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, so that we could be reconciled to God, put back in relationship with him. But not just we, but all of the cosmos, the entire creation. And so then what the Bible does at the end, and throughout the Bible, I should say, it describes what is going to be a new earth. That is a really bad circle. A new earth. And on that new earth and in the new cosmos, we will be there with God, right? All our languages, every race, every, you know, our, our gender is God created us. And most importantly, God is going to be with us too. And it's going to be an awesome place. It is not, heaven is not some un, unearthly, un, unimaginable place that is so unlike our universe that we can't even think about it. And that's why I think a lot of people don't think about heaven because we just assume it's not worth thinking about because it's so mysterious. Well, there's a mystery to it. We cannot fully imagine it, but God has given us glimpses of it in what it was like in Genesis before man fell. And even today, when you look at the earth, and even when you look at yourself, there are glimpses of what is waiting in the future. So let's come back and let's talk a little bit about the new heaven and the new earth. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn open to the passage that speaks most about it, Revelation chapter 21. 
Now, when you get in the book of Revelation, you always talk about prophecy. I don't want to do that today. I don't want to talk about what's called the millennium. The millennium describes a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ after he returns. And during that thousand-year rule and reign, those who survive the tribulation uh, can honor God and can come to faith and trust in God. But at the end of the thousand years, there's another major rebellion by Satan. And then God, God quenches that. Christ destroys him. He's sent into the lake of fire, etc. And eternity continues. We rule and reign during that period of time. Some people see it as literal. Some people see it as symbolic. Some people say symbolically it's already started. I say all that so that for those of you who are Bible students, those of you who love to study prophecy, you've now heard me acknowledge it, okay? But I, I don't want to go into it. What I want to talk about, though, is, is the new heaven, the new earth, where we are going to be the thousand years and beyond, no matter how you describe it, okay? So we're talking about our future. There's a lot packed into Revelation 21. I'm only going to read some of the verses. They're very detailed. It's rather bizarre to the human mind. But understood, if you've been with us in this series, it starts to make sense. It's exciting. Listen, this is your future and mine. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plague came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, that's the new Jerusalem, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. His brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 16. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was high. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. The angel measured the wall using the human measurement, and it was 144 cubits. That's about 260 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundation city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent as glass. Pretty amazing, huh? Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anybody who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now go to chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. 
the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light for, of lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. All right, first of all, I admit that some of this is symbolic, like the names of the forehead. <clears throat> some of it's literal, like the city, the new city of Jerusalem is literal. Other things, we don't know if they're symbolic or literal. Remember, we're trying to describe something that in many ways is hard to find human words. So the writer is inspired to use the best words that are available at the language of that time to provoke our imaginations to try to see what is in the future, to see what's on the shore. So let's try to see it more clearly. Want to do that? Yeah. Yes. All right. This section does. I'm sorry for the rest of you. No, I'm All right. <laughs> you guys should have gone to Lydia's before you came and got your mochas. All right. Let's look at it together. All right. Now, before we do that, a couple questions come up. First of all, here's one question that's often asked because it says a new heaven and new earth. Does that mean the, the present heaven and earth are going to be destroyed, annihilated? It sounds like that when you read a passage like in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It says there, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So it almost sounds like what God does is he just melts it all down, destroys it, annihilates it, and starts from brand new. But the problem is there are two Greek words for new. <clears throat> One of them is the Greek word neos, which means to make new out of nothing, so to speak. You just start brand new in terms of origin. The other uh, word is kainos, and kainos means you, you start with the nature of something and make it new. You improve its quality and make it new. Well, Peter uses kainos here. So the idea here is he takes what is and he makes something new out of it. So, for example, um, how many of you have ever restored a piece of furniture, old furniture? You ever done that? What do you do when you, when you do that? You strip it down first, don't you? And then after you strip it down, you kind of bring it back to life again. It looks, it's old, but it looks brand new. Earlier in the text, Peter says, you know, at one time God sent a flood to cleanse the earth, but it didn't get rid of the earth, but it cleansed it. You know, of, of all the sinful people who were in rebellion against God. He said, in the future, God's not going to send a flood, he's going to send a fire. Whether it's little, literal or symbolic, I don't know, but what I do know this is this. The entire cosmos, including planet Earth, is going to be updated. It is going to be cleansed. It is going to be new and improved. Second question people ask is, well, how about the text? It sounds like the sun, the moon, and the sea disappear. Well, that, that's an interesting question. Does the sea really disappear? Depends how you interpret it. Oftentimes, the sea represents the nations. The Antichrist comes out. The beast comes out of the sea. So maybe what it's talking about is, you know, the rebellious nations will disappear. Or maybe what it means is the literal sea, but it only means the sea in its violent sense, that hurricanes and drownings and predatory creatures in the sea will no longer be there, will no longer cause harm, there'll be no more storms. Or it may mean the sea that separates land masses will be removed so that the land will be connected as it appears it was before the flood came along and the Tower of Babel, etc. I don't think the seas actually, though, disappear. Because in Psalm 72, in Zechariah chapter 9, and in Isaiah 65, which are talking about the future, they talk about bodies of water that already exist. So I think there'll be water around. 
How about the sun and the moon? Do they disappear? I don't think so. That's only a reference to the New Jerusalem. What it's really saying is we don't need a sun and a moon to keep things lit up because God's glory, because God is present with us, keeps things lit up. You know, in Genesis, before God created the sun and the moon, there was light already. God provided that light. And how about the New Jerusalem? Let me tell you about this. If we take it literally, if that's how we want to interpret it, then it is 1,400 miles high, long, and wide. That means that if you were to stand a mile back from the New Jerusalem, this new city, God's capital of the universe, you couldn't see the top. If you stood 5,000 miles away and looked at it, it would be 130 times bigger than the moon when you see it in the sky on a full moon. You have to be 160,000 miles away in the, in the uh, galaxy, in our solar system, to be able to see the new Jerusalem appear like the moon does to us right now in the sky. If you give a generous 12 feet per story, there are, that means there's about 600,000 stories in the new Jerusalem. It is the size of India, actually a little bit bigger than India, about 2 million square miles. So maybe God has to expand the earth when he, re, when he redoes things. I don't know, but what I do know is that it has to be shaped as a cube or as a pyramid if we go by today's modern physics. It is way beyond that, by the way, folks. It is way beyond that. This is just us grappling with our small little minds trying to comprehend what God is going to do. What I want you to grasp is that you're not Casper the ghost floating out in space someplace. It is not something that you can't imagine in the sense that it is so different from what you know. God is going to use things that are very familiar. Just like your resurrected body will be familiar to you and to others, so will the solar system, so will the universe, so will planet Earth. Now, what I want to do is take you on a tour of the new Earth using our imaginations and the new heavens. And this tour is... Uh, the result of many passages of Scripture. Let me show you the many passages of Scripture that refer to the future and the new heaven and the new earth and what life will be like. I don't have time to go through each one of those, all right? You can barely read those. There's so many of them. So I want to borrow from a, a resource that I found. That the author's unknown. I can't track down the author, so I had to go, kind of go through this and make sure it aligns. And what they've done is they've just taken it literally. It said, based on what these passages literally say, here's what it would be like. Again, this is speculation, but it's on the right track. So I'm going to read it. You can either keep your eyes open, your eyes closed, but I hope it'll cause your heart to pound a little bit faster, and I hope it'll cause you to really look forward to heaven. Here we go. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Again, we have the same 10 people who are ready to go. All right. <laughs> the rest of you are just happy on earth the way it is. Okay, all right. Here we go. A typical day in eternity starts in your home in the new city of Jerusalem. Each person has a specially designated home just for them. You're like, oh, come on, where does that come from? Jesus said in John 14, I am going to prepare a place for you. It literally means the word that's used there is an apartment. It's the same word for apartment. Now, literally, I don't know how we're supposed to interpret that, but he's preparing a place for you and for me. Yours is the home you've always dreamed of. After resting, you think about everything you're going to do today. Outside your home is fruit you planted. The Bible talks about that. 
It looks ripe, so gather some of the other finest food from God. You and some of your neighbors eat and have a drink, even though you don't need to eat or drink in your resurrected body. Doing so is still a pleasure. I'm very grateful for that. As a person who loves to eat and drink. The city is perfect as its architect and builder is God. You take a stroll through it and walk down the streets of gold. Along the sides, you can see the tree of life bearing its fruit for the month. The river flowing down the middle of the street. Remember the first, remember the first one? Eden, the river flowing through it? Remember the gold and the onyx? And remember the uh, aromatic resin, etc. Minerals. Did you hear when I read Revelation 21, the minerals that were all mentioned there? On old earth, the rivers and pools were cloudy or had chlorine. Here you are still amazed how clear it is underwater. The best part is you can swim in the river without drowning. The underwater scene is bright as God provides the light. I mean, we don't think about this, but, but remember, you got a resurrected body. You swim, you swim here on earth, you're going to swim in heaven. If you enjoy the ocean, if you enjoy the rivers, you enjoy the lake, you'll still be able to enjoy that. Don't make this so otherworldly. If you really want to understand the new earth, you understand it before Genesis chapter 3. Later on, you leave New Jerusalem out of one of the 12 gates that are always open to explore the country. You see a herd of camels in the distance. Maybe you're on a mountain bike. I don't know. Is it possible? Could we ride? Could there be bikes in heaven? Road bikes, mountain bikes? Or is that not allowed? Is that forbidden? Is that not possible? If God gives us bodies, why can't we ride a bike? You see a herd of camels in the distance. You then see sights you never would have seen on the old earth. A leopard lying down with a goat and a cow and a bear eating together. Animals now coexist peacefully that do not prey on one another. You then climb a great mountain and observe the beautiful landscape. You come to a city in one of the many nations of the new earth. New earth doesn't have any violent seas or barriers that separate the nations. Once you arrive, you find that people created beautiful gifts in honor of God. You bring some of them back to New Jerusalem. You go back to New Jerusalem and decide that the view from the mountain wasn't, wasn't good enough and you go to the height of the city, 1,400 miles into space. The view is even more spectacular. You now want to go further and decide to explore the new solar system. You don't need to worry about radiation like astronauts did in the old universe under the curse. You also don't have to be concerned about the vacuum of space or bringing your own air as our resurrected bodies are imperishable. You first visit Venus. In the old solar system, Venus was hot and inhospitable. Now it's a paradise like all the other planets in the system and in the universe. Stars in the universe declare God's glory. Our own galaxy has billions of stars, and the universe has billions of galaxies with billions of stars. You want to explore all of them, but that will take eternity. That's not a problem. We will have eternity to explore. Jesus' kingdom will never end. The stars will last forever. There will always be much to learn, much to see, much to do. We'll be learning. We'll be using our skills. You'll be able to follow your interests, your abilities. There will be things to accomplish, missions that God's going to give us to do. What that's like, I don't know. But you're not going to float around playing a harp. There will be purpose to each and every day. On your way back, you clearly see New Jerusalem from space. The city shines so brightly, it appears as a star before you can see any part of the new earth. It and your trip make you appreciate God's creation even more. When you get back, you realize how much more you'll still learn. One topic you will like to learn more about is what Jesus did on the old earth. The, that alone will last a long time. You end the day saving the best for last by worshiping God. 
You see God walking among the people in New Jerusalem. You can now look at God, who on old earth lived in unapproachable light. On old earth, if you tried to look at the Lord's face, you would have died due to God's pure holiness and our imperfect nature. When you see God's face, you wonder how you ever lived without experiencing it. Every believer's destiny is to be with the Lord. You cannot think of a better way to spend eternity than to be with God, the maker of all things. I read this poem by John Donne the other day. It says, the stars and universe declare God's glory. Our own galaxy has billions of stars, and the universe has billions of galaxies. In light of that, he goes on and he says this, I shall rise to the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as the sun shines. I shall be united to the ancient of days, to God himself, who had no morning, never begun. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live until I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. See, that's what heaven ultimately is about. It's not about the new body. It's not about the mystery. It's not about, you know, whether seas, sun, or moon, or the new Jerusalem, how big it is, where I can go, what I'll experience, what I can eat, what I can do. It's about being with God. It's about God being with us. That's what it's all about. It's about us worshiping him. It's about the mysteries being unfolded to us. It's about really living. It's about a brand new beginning. And what fascinates me right now, and I don't have time to go into this, but what fascinates me right now is what the Bible describes is to be our future. I find secular human beings yearning for and trying to discover and try to experience scientifically. Why is it we want to escape this earth? Why is it we want to be in space? Why is it we want to discover what's out there? It was put into us because we are meant for more than just what we're experiencing now. God has so much more, but we always try to go it our way. That's the problem of, I, of me wanting to be God instead of trusting God and going his way, which requires faith, which requires faith. It requires us to live on the edge of heaven, so to speak. It requires us to believe that the shore, even though there's fog in the air, that the shore is closer than what we think, that it is really only one step away from us. And the example for us to follow of all people is Abraham in the Bible. And I've never thought about Abraham in light of the new heaven and the new earth until now, as I've been studying this myself. In Hebrews chapter 11, I discovered that Abraham was looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. That's you and me. We're called to head toward an inheritance called heaven, new heaven, new earth. And we go by faith. We go trusting and obeying God, though we can't necessarily see it yet. Verse 9, it says, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. You know what that says? It says that Abraham lived on earth, but he lived like a stranger, like a foreigner. He did not consider this to be his home. He never owned a piece of property in the promised land except where he was buried, the cave of Machpelah. This is not your home. This is not my home. I do not want this to be my home. 
We are strangers passing through, heading toward our true home. It says in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's not an earthly home. You come all the way down the passage to verse 16. He says, instead, he says, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. And not just for them, but for you and for me. Will you, will you join Abraham? Will you live by faith on the edge of heaven? Almost there, close enough to smell it, to taste it, to feel it. So that while you live here on this earth, it is in view of eternity. It is in view of being with God forever. I'm not going to ask you how you want to interpret these as symbols or literal. What it represents is far greater than any human words could come up with. But what I want to ask you is, do you believe? Do you believe there is a heaven? Do you believe there's a new earth? Do you believe you have a resurrected body? Do you believe there's a future that is glorious and that you're going to be there someday? And if you do, how's that changing your life? How's that changing the way you view others? How's it changing the way you think? How's it changing the way that you behave? And in light of whatever you're going through right now, does it create a little faster heartbeat in you? knowing what's coming as we stand on the edge of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before you. And we are just so amazed, oh God, that you have created this beautiful landscape for us, this future for us. Sometimes, God, it seems real and close to me. And other times, Father, I confess it seems unreal and so far away. And usually it's because in those moments I'm overwhelmed by this life. And perhaps others feel that way as well, God. Lord, I pray that you clear the fog up, that you give them a glimpse of the shore. Grant them eyes and hearts and minds of faith to see the future. And God, I pray and ask that we would all choose to live on the edge of heaven, that by faith we get as close as we can. And let that, Lord, let that hope drive how we live in this day that we are in now. And God, I thank you that we're not alone in this world, this broken down, fractured world. Your spirit has come into our lives. We want to trust the Holy Spirit. We want to give him control. God, we're not winding down. We're gearing up. We're looking forward to that day. We step into your presence. And there finally, oh God, free from sin, free from the inundation of a sinful culture that we have helped to create, we will be able to truly worship you in the most amazing freedom. And we will weep and we will dance and we will rejoice when we discover what we doubted is true, what we ignored is real. Thank you, Father, for this hope. In Christ's name, amen.